The scripture reading for this morning is from Jonah chapter 4. Please uh, stand, if able, for the reading of God's Word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, <clears throat> and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could, should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've come to the end of our study of Jonah, and uh, it feels like a pretty abrupt ending, right? How about them cattle? <laughs> and, you know, there's a reason. There's two reasons, really, why it ends so abruptly. And uh, the second reason I'll get back to, we'll circle back around to it at the, uh, at the end of the sermon this morning. But the first really has to do with the, the very structure of the book. You remember back when we looked at the first Jonah, first three verses, that first sermon in Jonah, and we kind of did the overview of Jonah and looked at the, the parallelism between the first two chapters of Jonah and the second two chapters of Jonah. Really astounding the way in which uh, the author weaves these two narratives together uh, with, with Jonah chapter 2 ending with that great statement by Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. But then you get to the end of Jonah chapter 4, and you essentially have God saying to Jonah, shall I not save them? Right? End of Jonah chapter 2, from the mouth of Jonah, salvation belongs to you, O God. End of chapter 4, from the mouth, as it were, of God, uh, Jonah, you're right. Salvation comes from me and me alone. Shall I not save them, Jonah? Well, Jonah's answer, of course, it seems to be, anyway, is no, God. You shouldn't save them. Don't you know who they are, God? They are our enemy. Like, we are your people. We're the ones that you set your favor on. We're the ones who... who who you love. How could you possibly love them? They don't deserve your love, God. 
They don't deserve your mercy. We are the ones who deserve your mercy, who deserve your continued and abiding protection against the threat of all enemies, foreign and domestic, Jonah might say. God, how could you allow them to flourish? Wouldn't it be better for them to perish? Sinclair Ferguson, in his little, uh, little booklet on Jonah, titled Man Overboard, good title. Jonah, or, or Sinclair Ferguson says concerning Jonah that Jonah was a nationalist of the worst kind, right? I mean, Sinclair Ferguson said there's nothing wrong with loving your country and, and loving your people. The Apostle Paul loved his Jewish people. He longed that all of them would be saved, However, when your love for your people, your love for your own tribe, elevates to the point where you are convinced that God can only be for you and not for the other, and your love for your people is matched by a hatred for the other, you have become a nationalist of the worst kind. And Ferguson points out, interestingly enough, Ferguson wrote his little booklet on Jonah more than a decade ago. Like, I have the second edition. It was printed in 2008. I couldn't even tell when the first edition was printed. There was something going on with the uh, copyright page. Bottom line is, more than 10 years ago, Ferguson is writing this about the concern. He even says, in our land, the issue of whether the church and individual Christians will demonstrate more of the spirit of Jonah or more of the spirit of Jesus may increasingly become an issue on the societal level. Boom. I mean, here we are. I was watching uh, PBS NewsHour this past weekend, and uh, they had an interview with a guy named Andrew Morantz. He wrote this book. I love the title. Antisocial, Online Extremist, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And in the interview, and I'm assuming in the book as well, his, his point is that, listen, the, the creators of these platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Reddit kind of had this implicit idea this utopian-type belief that if we create a forum, if we create a platform, a space for unencumbered free speech that will ultimately arc toward good. It will arc toward the kind of conversation and dialogue that will bring people together. And in the, in the article, I mean, sorry, in the interview, it basically says, wow, were they wrong? Right? Of course, we know because of the fallen condition of, of man, right? H.G. Wells learned it at the end of World War II. I mean, all these... All these people that have reflected on things recognize people are not inherently good. The arc of humanity is not naturally toward community, coming together in unity, making great you know, moral and spiritual progress in the world. No, the arc of humanity is always toward division. It's always toward destruction. It's always toward disintegration among peoples. And so the question is, what will we as Christians do in this unique cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Right? I mean, the, the divisions are profound in our society. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Democrats despise Republicans. Republicans despise Democrats. Not universally, but by and large, it certainly seems to be the case. The question is, how will Christians who are Democrats and Christians who are Republicans enter into this discussion, enter into this dialogue, and demonstrate more of the spirit of Jesus and less of the spirit of Jonah? 
This is all happening at a time when the, the culture's view on Christianity is that we are actually a net negative to society as a whole. That comes from a foundation known as the Pine Top Foundation. They, over the course of the last 10 years, looked at every major study that was done concerning religious affiliation in America and called all these different results. And one of the things that they found is that Christianity, the church, individual Christians, are now viewed as a net negative on society. Yes, the church does good things, but net negative. So here we are, kind of in this cultural moment, and Jonah suits us well for wrestling through this question of how will we, and again, this is both a a liberal conservative, a, a Democrat or Republican temptation, how will we who are tempted to view our own tribe as right, fundamentally right, God pleasing right, and the other as fundamentally wrong and worthy of God's condemnation? How will we as Christians, recognizing the pull in our society in those directions, respond again with more the spirit of Jesus and not the spirit of Jonah? And of course, this isn't just you know, kind of at that you know, big, high-level, you know, political level, societal level. This gets right down to the way in which we relate to people who are other. People who think differently, believe differently, act differently than we do. People that if we're like Christ, following Christ, are called to engage deeper into relationship with and not retract or pull back away from, how will we in those relationships demonstrate more the spirit of Jesus than the spirit of Jonah? So these are the questions that we need to wrestle with as we wrap up Jonah. may not feel like this to you, but to me it felt like it all went too quick. Great book. Great book. Okay, so here's three things we're going to consider. And we're going to do this as we consider what Jonah ought to have been willing to do, but then ask ourselves, will we be willing to do these things? And the first is examine your anger. Right, Jonah needed to be willing to examine his anger. There's an invitation from God to examine his anger. So the question for us is, will we examine our anger? The second is this. Will we reflect on God's character? Jonah knew things about God. He wasn't reflecting much on God's character. And then third, will we enter in with compassion for others? Will we enter in with compassion for others? So will we examine our anger, reflect on God's character, and enter in with compassion for others? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this passage this morning and as we wrap up our study of, of Jonah, uh, we thank you for preserving it for us down to this very day. We thank you for the way in which your spirit works through this portion of your word and every portion of your word to instruct us and to teach us and to guide us. Or would you do so even this morning? Would you give us a greater love for you as your spirit works in our hearts? through your word, would you give us a greater love for one another? And would you give us a greater love for the people, places, and things that you love? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, examine your anger. Look at Jonah's anger. Jonah is angry with God about grace. He is. He's angry with God about grace. He's angry with God about the grace that God has shown the Ninevites. 
So verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Well, what was it that displeased him? Remember chapter 3. Jonah went in, he preached that message, you know, 40 days and Nineveh shall perish or be overthrown. The people, you know, from the, the greatest to the least, repent, and God relents. He turns away from his wrath that he was ready to pour out upon the Ninevites. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was angry with God about grace, the grace that he had shown the Ninevites. Jonah was also angry with God about the grace that he felt that he had withheld from him. That's the point of the plant. Take a look at the, that central passage in chapter 4, verse 5 through uh, verse 9. Let me read it again for us and kind of explain it a little bit along the way. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Now, booths, you know, just think of, here's kind of this open, arid area. Jonah's pulled together some, some, some leaves and some branches, and he's kind of built a little shelter that he can be under to protect himself from the wind, or from the sun, I'm sorry. Uh, and he, it goes on, till he should see what would become of the city. He's just hoping that God's going to change his mind. Right? Oh, Lord, maybe you just, maybe you, maybe you misread the situation. I'm just going to watch, because surely you'll come back around and destroy these people. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. It made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. What a gift of God's grace. It made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. <clears throat> so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And of course, the plant died and the sun came and Jonah said, It's not fair, God. How could you show grace to them? And withhold your grace from me. What's at the root of Jonah's anger? You know, God steps in and says, in both instances, are you right to be angry? What's at the root of his anger? And what I want to say is that the root of his anger is kind of taking something from James chapter 4 and applying it in the context of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah had an inordinate love for the plant. An inordinate love for the plant. In James chapter 4, James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your desires? And the idea there, the word that he uses, is the idea of inordinate desires, over-desires, hyper-desires. What Augustine would say is disordered loves. Is it not, Jonah, your inordinate love or desire for the plant? At the root of it for Jonah is this idea, his inordinate love for the plant, symbolizing God's favor, God's grace, was this idea in Jonah's heart that he had merited that grace, that he had a privileged position with God on the basis of his performance. It's the same attitude, it's the same spirit that inhabited the Pharisees, that sense of self-righteousness. It's in Jonah as well. Now, how do you know that it's there? Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is not a long journey from the mouth that says, they don't deserve your mercy, God, but I do, back down into a heart that believes, I've earned your mercy. They haven't. Right? That self-righteousness 
that is in his heart is there because he had an inordinate love for his position with God. They don't deserve your grace, God. They don't deserve your mercy. How could you show it to them? I do deserve your mercy, God. How could you withhold it from me? So the vine, inordinate desire, inordinate love for this gift of God's grace in his life, the vine. And so my question to you, what's your vine? Right? Vines are good things. They're not wasn't inherently in any way bad thing. God appointed a good thing for Jonah in order to protect him. Jonah was, he had an inordinate love for the vine. Such that when it went away, he was ready to die. So what's the vine in your life? What is the thing you're basing your life and your happiness and your contentment? What's the thing that you think you can't live without? What's that one thing, perhaps, that one relationship, that one uh, source of your identity, that one uh, word that you want to get of affirmation or encouragement from another person that, that, you're, that your very happiness hinges upon, right? What is the thing that if you don't have it, you might as well die? That for you is your vine. The vine itself, again, a good thing. But you know that if the loss of that thing makes you feel as though you're as good as dead, and you've got an inordinate love for the vine. What means does God employ then to expose Jonah's anger? Right, to get to the heart of his anger. And what, what means does he use in our lives? Well, keeping with the Jonah imagery, God employs the worm in the wind. Right? God brings something in Jonah's life to expose his inordinate love for the plant. He brings a worm to chew away at it. He brings a sun to scorch his head. And he does this ultimately for Jonah's good. Do you see that? God asked Jonah, why are you angry? Are you right to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? And then God brings him into the situation where he experiences something of God's sovereign grace and his goodness in the provision of the plant, and he experiences something of God's sovereign grace and goodness in the destruction of the plant. All of which are examples of God's sovereign grace. God appointed you know, we get all bound up when we read Jonah and we think, how could he have appointed the storm and how could he have appointed the fish to, to swallow Jonah? How could he have appointed, you know, all of a sudden to grow up overnight this, uh, this plant and then, then appointed a worm and appointed the wind? And, and we, we forget, oh, God is God. If he's, you know, if he's God, then he can do these kinds of things. The thing that we ought to wrestle with is the fact that God appointed these things. Is God a good God or an evil God? He's a sovereign God. And all of his appointments are by his design for the good of his people. And that's the case here for Jonah. God provided even the suffering in Jonah's life for his good. Now, this, we, we, you know, our study of 1 Peter, we thought about the same idea, that God brings trials to refine us 
uses suffering in order to make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Those trials, those sufferings are appointments. They're appointed by God. That's hard to fathom. Uh, Colin Smith uh, wrote a little commentary on Jonah as well. In it, he quotes uh, a man by the name of Alan Redpath. I don't, never heard of him. Many of you haven't probably as well. But Alan Redpath, Colin Smith said, is one of his spiritual heroes. He's just someone he's looked to, lived an everyday faithful Christian life. And Colin Smith said, this is what Alan Redpath said after he had experienced a debilitating stroke. So Redpath experiences this debilitating stroke, and then he writes this, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. You already saying. Nothing comes into your life without passing through the hand of God first. Nothing. So receive God's gracious invitation to examine your anger. The plant in Jonah's life brought comfort and joy. He had an inordinate desire, inordinate love for the plant. And so God brought the worm, which brought disappointment and sorrow. He brought the wind, which brought pain and distress. What about you? What is the good thing in your life that you've made an ultimate thing? What is the worm that has brought you sorrow? What is the wind that has brought pain that you wish would stop blowing? Jonah tells us all these things are appointed by God for your good. What that means is if we are willing to examine our anger or despair, you know, pick the emotion. If we're willing to go back through that and examine the heart, we may have an opportunity to learn more, more about God's grace. Second, reflect on God's character. Look at uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do those words sound familiar? Exodus chapter 34. This is God's self-disclosure. Moses says, God, let me see your glory. And God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and only let you see, in a sense, you know, the, the train of my glory because if you see me in my, the fullness of my glory, you'll die. And so God passes by and says concerning himself, this is who I am. What does it mean for me to be Yahweh? It means this. I am a God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jonah here says, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. And I'm mad. I'm mad. Exceedingly angry. Jonah knew about God's character. He wasn't reflecting much on the implications of God's character. He knew that God was a God of boundless grace. He also knew that God was a God of indiscriminate mercy. Indiscriminate mercy. We, we did the call to worship from Psalm 145. Psalm 145 was written by David. That means Jonah had it. It was part of his you know, uh, arsenal in terms of the word of God that he had hidden in his heart. Psalm 145 
verse 8 reads this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Again, echoing Exodus 34. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In other words, his mercy is indiscriminate. It's not defined to people, Jonah's thinking, who have earned it, because no one can earn it. It's indiscriminate. It is shown to all. The sun shines and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. All people. That doesn't mean universalism. Jesus is saying all kinds of people, not literally every single person. Jesus is saying all without distinction, not all without exception. Jonah says no. We need to make distinctions. And there are no exceptions. God, you can't be true to your own character. That's just not fair. And of course, just a moment's reflection on Jonah's part would have helped him to realize, wait a minute, I and my people, we're saved by grace. I remember, Jonah may say, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, in which Moses wrote what God had said, which was this. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Wait a minute. Why does he love us? Oh, just because he loves us. It's nothing in us. Jonah should have been able to reflect on that. The only reason why God has set his love on us is just because he chose to love us. It's not because of anything in us. And if you could fast forward to what Paul knew, Paul knew in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, that no one is righteous, no, not one. And Paul says there, are we Jews any different? No, Jew and Gentile alike. For Jonah... Jew and Assyrian alike. No one is righteous. No, not one. Jonah would have recognized that God's grace toward him was boundless. He would have recognized that God's mercy toward him was indiscriminate because God hadn't looked upon Jonah or, God's, or Jonah's you know, people, his kinsmen, and said, wow, they are deserving of mercy as if anyone could be deserving of mercy. Will you reflect on the boundless grace of an indiscriminate mercy that has been shown to you. John Newton did this a great deal. John Newton, of course, the, uh, the, the infamous slave trader in the African slave trade, uh, converted by God's grace, became a Christian, ultimately became a pastor, a hymn writer. We sing many of his hymns. Uh, his writings influenced people like William Wilberforce to overturn slavery in England. His letters have been collected. They provide comfort to many people down to this very day. Near the end of his life, John Newton said, the, essentially the fruit of his lifetime of reflection on God boiled down to this. I know these two things. I am a great sinner and my Jesus is a great Savior. 
Where might such reflection lead? In Jonah's life, where might it lead in our life? Where it will lead is to, first of all, worship. Worship. Worship from the heart, not external, formal worship, but, but worship of this God who saves, whose love is boundless, whose mercy is indiscriminate, whose grace is sovereign. With that, a sense of wonder. How is it, God, that you could save me? And then finally, bold and humble witness. Witness. A willingness to go. And that leads to our third and final point. Jonah needed to be willing to enter in with God's compassion for the people of Nineveh. And <clears throat> we must enter in with God's compassion for people with whom we may not agree and may never agree. Verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. There's this contrast between God's location, as it were, and Jonah's location, between God's heart and Jonah's heart. Jonah is on the hill looking down on the city, hoping it'll be destroyed. God, by his spirit, is in the city working in the hearts of the people to bring uh, repentance. Jonah sees the people of Nineveh repent, and he's angry. God sees the people of Nineveh repent, and he turns from his anger. Jonah knew where he needed to be and what he needed to be doing. He needed to be in the city. He knew that. He, he should have known, listen, this promise that God made to Father Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the nations, that's happening. Like the, the good news, the, the, the truth about God, it's going to the Gentiles now. And Jonah could be thinking, I'm on the leading, I am the leading edge of the, of the plow, breaking new ground amongst the Gentiles with the gospel. He knew where he needed to be, and he knew he needed to have God's heart for the people. God tells him that here. God says, shall I not pity these people who do not know their right hand from their left? Just think about that for a minute. Shall I not pity these people? Shall I not have compassion on these people who do not know their right hand from their left? What does that mean? That means these people have lost their moral compass. That means these people no longer know right from wrong. It means these people are slaves to sin. It means these people are spiritually blind. And God says to Jonah, shall I not have compassion for them? Shall I not pity them? You know, we think about people in our lives who aren't yet Christians and they keep doing things and we want to say, how could you keep doing that? And we forget that they don't know their right hand from their left. They're still spiritually blind. They're still enslaved to sin. We get so frustrated. We get so angry. And God says, shall I not have compassion? What stirs God's heart? The very fact that they don't know their right hand from their left. Jonah says, God, don't you see their wickedness? And God says to Jonah, don't you see them? Don't you see them? 
Jonah needed to enter in because God was there. God had compassion for those people. And in Christ, God entered in to have compassion for people who did not know their right hand from their left. From the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. Listen, as we put ourselves in that place of recognizing that Jesus had to enter in, that God had compassion, he wasn't outside the city of your life, as it were, looking down, just waiting for the opportunity to smote you, but instead came into the city that is your life in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and went to the cross, bled and died and then rose for your justification, for your forgiveness. And then, like Jonah, but not like Jonah, went outside the city. See, Jonah went outside the city to watch for God's reproach. Jesus went out the city to bear God's reproach. To bear it for you. To bear it for me. Now we come back to the open-ended story that is Jonah. And of course it's open-ended because we have to put ourselves here and ask how will we respond? How will we respond? And so we need to feel that challenge as we go. But I also want to ask the question, how did Jonah respond? Do we know? I think we do. Because we've got this book. I mean, Jonah was, I mean, he didn't take a crew with him, right? This wasn't a mission trip. It was Jonah had some of his pals. The only reason people know about the storm because Jonah told about the storm. The only reason people knew about the fish is Jonah told about the fish. The only people, the reason people knew about the plant and the worm and the wind. And Jonah's response to those appointments in his life was because Jonah told the story. We don't know whether Jonah wrote this story or whether he told it and someone else wrote it down. But the only reason we know is because God did a work in Jonah's heart so that Jonah was able to make sure that God was the hero of his story because he was. Will you recognize that God is the hero of your story? And will you enter in with your words, the way that you do dialogue with people that think differently than you, the way that you love people who are different than you, with the heart of Jesus, having been loved by Jesus and not with the heart of Jonah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We pray that you would help us to walk in your footsteps, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the fact that at some point in Jonah's life, he recognized that your grace was boundless and your mercy indiscriminate and was willing to tell the story of how your grace and your mercy was evidenced through him. And I pray, O oh God, that you would help us finish out the story of Jonah in our lives, as it were,
by being people who both bear witness to and give evidence of by the way in which we speak and the way in which we behave. Give evidence of your great and boundless grace and your indiscriminate, undeserved mercy offered to all who will cry out to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.